0: You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast and radio show defending the truth of God's Word in Biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and in this week's lesson, we're talking about basic flood sedimentology. We're right smack dab in the middle of a series called The Basics of Creation Science, and we're looking at, from a scientific perspective, what we creationists believe. We've already talked so far about uh, the biblical data on such matters, and so now um, we are talking more in the scientific realm, we've already looked at Darwin's finches and looked at the idea of evolution, that was last week, and if you haven't um, been with us thus far, this is the fifth installment of the series, we're we're literally right halfway through it, so I encourage you to go back and download those previous episodes. Now we're going to be moving pretty fast this week because I've got a lot of ground to cover and a lot of information to share, so let's dive in. Around the world, we have these huge pockets of, 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 of sediment. We have all this data that must be explained. We have um, miles of rock layer. And we have to account for it somehow. We have these huge formations like the Grand Canyon, um, the White Cliffs of Dover, and many others. And we have to kind of make sense of why those things are there. And of course, you know, there are two ways that scientists um, interpret data, two major paradigms. There's the evolutionary um, worldview paradigm, and then there is the creationist's worldview paradigm. Now, there are some who kind of mix those two, um, but we are firmly on the side of the biblical creation paradigm. That is, uh, we're looking at an earth and a universe of about 6,000 years, give or take a little bit, just around 6,000 years, according to the genealogical dates in the Bible. And when we look at the world around us, we need to um, find out how to reconcile what we see with what we read. God's Word does, in fact, line up with God's world. And we need scientists who are looking to make that Connection, and so um, that is what we're talking about. Now, there are a couple um, building blocks here that we need to talk about when it's when we talk about sedimentology. Of course, um, when we when we mention sedimentology, we're talking about the laying down of. The uh, sediment that we find out around the world when water moves, it kind of shifts sand around, and um, it it shifts rock around, and it it moves, and as it moves, it lays down this um, sediment. Of course, if you've looked at the shallow end of a, of a, of a river and you've, you've been at the back of the river, you've kind of seen sediment. You see how the how the dirt and the sand kind of shifts and moves, and eventually it lays down. And um, if that water were to go away, you know, depending on the time and the erosion and the way things worked, it might, um, it might harden. And so that's what we're talking about, okay? So, um, let's look at the biblical data real quick on an event that... We know happened in the history, according to the Bible, that would explain such a thing. Of course, I'm talking about the flood of Noah, the flood of Noah. We believe that the sediment that we find can be explained easily. By Noah's flood, but let's look at what the Bible has to say about it, so we don't miss anything. Okay, Genesis 7:10 or 11 says, "And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open." Now, hang on to those phrases: the fountains of the great deep, and the windows of heaven. Now, here is the same chapter, verses 17 through 23. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle. And of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all of that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the earth, both man and cattle, and creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. Genesis 8, 1-3 And God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the, of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. Okay, so we have a vivid description here of this mass extinction event. It was a worldwide extinction event. It killed everything that was alive except what the Lord had directed Noah to bring onto the ark with him. Everything else was gone. And we have a few biblical markers as to how this could have happened scientifically. Now, we don't have modern names. We don't have um, sedimentation as a concept. We don't have uh, plate tectonics mentioned to us here in the Bible. But what we do have is these um, wa- these these fountains of the great deep, the windows of heaven, the waters prevailed, um The waters assuaged. the waters were abated. We have these markers that help us to understand how these things might have happened from a scientific perspective. It's enough to build models on, and that's what we need to be able to do. Now, of course, we said already, what is sedimentation? Okay, sedimentation is the deposition of rock sediment by water, really simple. The question is, was this process rapid, or was it gradual? That's the question. If it was rapid, then we have perfect evidence for the flood. If it was gradual, then that means that the people who believe in millions of years are right. Whether that be um, old earth creationists or evolutionists, that is their case. Okay. Was it gradual or was it rapid? Now, I believe 100% that everything that we see is rapid. And we can't possibly go through everything today. Um, This is a subject we could talk for hours on. We've got 15 minutes. So we can't possibly talk about this in the depth it needs to be. But I want to look at just a few things. I want to highlight a few things. Let's look at some stratigraphical oddities. Okay, that's a big word, stratigraphical. But that's basically talking about... um, the rock strata. What do we find in the rock strata? We've got a few things that are um, a bit interesting and maybe a bit off if we're talking about a burial that took place over millions of years. Um, But we have some things that fit perfectly if we're talking about a rapid burial. So um, here's one. How about footprints in the Coconino sandstone? So what we have is in the Coconino, it's a huge Sandstone that is found on the Grand Canyon and we often reference the Grand Canyon when talking about flood geology Because it's so easy to see all the different rock layers right there It's just one of the best and easiest places to to test um, and so That's what we're talking about here. Um, and so I'm um, in the Coconino. Uh, what's interesting is we've got these um, tracks that are fossilized, okay? And in these tracks, they seem to begin and end suddenly. Um, The toes of the tracks are pointed in odd uh, directions, kind of unrelated to the animal's direction of travel. And it looks like they could have been escaping, climbing to escape maybe the floodwaters. And so, you know, why do you say that? Well, it's really interesting because these tracks There was testing done on them by a man named Leonard Brand. Okay, and he's done a lot of field work on these footprints. And in his laboratory studies, there's only one way that these kinds of footprints could be formed. And he performed this test with some salamanders um, on different types of sand, dry, wet, and underwater. The experimental tracks that best matched with the Coconino tracks by far were made underwater. And the flowing water would explain the sudden appearance and disappearance of many tracks as the currents picked up animals and landed them in new places. So understand that these footprints are definitely very interesting and not consistent with the old earth interpretation of how these tracks could have got there and how the Coconino could have got there which is by wind, um, desert winds blowing in um, the sand and laying it down in in waves there. Okay, another thing is the lack of erosion marks. This is another stratigraphical oddity. So in between some of the different layers of the Grand Canyon um, in those boundaries we should find some evidence of erosion and weathering for the millions of years that those layers were exposed. Uh, but we don't find that. Um, we don't find that at all. We find um, no evidence of that. In fact, in most cases, the boundaries are completely flat, featureless, and a knife edge with no evidence of any erosion, um, which is obviously consistent with uh, long, no long periods of, of elapsed time. Um, but we would expect that during a cataclysmic flood event. Um, A couple examples in the Grand Canyon, won't go through all of them, but um, right below the Tapiot sandstone, the Redwall limestone, below the Hermit foundation, and even below the Coconino sandstone. Enters in Genesis has a really good article laying all those out, and it kind of talks about how those areas in between those are featureless in the Grand Canyon. There's just absolutely no sign of erosion at all. And we'll dig more into that in a later podcast. Um, we might even dedicate one specifically to that, the lack of erosion marks. That'll be good. But um, for now, I think that's all you need to know. Go research that on the in Genesis. Type in um, erosion marks, and you'll find tons of information there about that. All right, um, next, and um, close to finally, we're going to be looking at the mega sequences, okay? So um, there are three what we call uh, mega sequences that are... In view and a sequence in um, Geology is this formation and the classic understanding of this is a Sandstone on the bottom Shale in the middle and then limestone up top and that is kind of this classic idea of what of a, of a rock formation that geologists would call a sequence so a mega sequence is just a really really big one of those and what's interesting is that we find some of these that run across continents, continents. And the only reason that we can explain such a thing, the only way that we can really explain such a thing and make good sense of it, is if the whole continent was at one time covered by water and rapid moving water. Check this out, the the Salk sandstone is the lowest of the Grand Canyon sedimentary layers. And it has to do with the Tapiat sandstone, um, which belongs to that. We talked about that a minute ago. And it covers much of the United States it, and its equivalents. I mean, we can hardly imagine what forces were necessary to deposit that. Um, we find huge boulders and sand beds and everything at the bottom of that um, mega sequence that were deposited by its storms. No long processes can account for this. The Tippecanoe Sandstone, um, or excuse me, Mega Sequence is another one of these, okay? It spans much of the eastern U.S. and um, is right on top of the limestone of the Upper Sauk Mega Sequence. The water depth may have stayed deep enough to continue depositing limestone right across the sequence boundary. That's really interesting. Um, another is the Kaskaskia. Okay, The Grand Canyon's Red wall limestone belongs to that. And the Kaskaskia um, goes into many places as far as the North American uh, continent is concerned, as far as Tennessee and even Pennsylvania. Um, and they actually appear in the exact same position in the strata sequences. They have the exact same fossils and other features in them. And um, the carboniferous limestone beds associated with this also appear in England. Again, containing the same fossils and other features, so we're talking about worldwide stuff here. Let's look briefly at the current accepted creationist model, and we're going to go a little bit past our time today, but just a few minutes. But I think this is really important. Okay, there's uh, our model currently is called catastrophic plate tectonics. Catastrophic plate tectonics is the model probably most widely accepted by creation scientists, and we all heard of plate tectonics. We learned about that in science class, but, you know, in plate tectonics, we talk about just rapid, the gradual moving of continents and um, and uh, these, these continental plates, and it, it's just it's there, but it doesn't really make sense. I mean, we're talking about just slow consonants. They're just moving at a snail's pace. and They're not really um, able to account for many of the geographic features that we find. In order to account for those things, we would need to see something a lot more catastrophic, a lot more violent looking. A lot faster paced. And so that's exactly what we see when we apply the catastrophic plate tectonics model proposed by a group of geologists in the mid-90s. And we're still working on that model. There's still much more that needs to be fleshed out. But here's the basic idea. The, this is the general overview of its features. Um, so the ocean floor cracks basically um, trigger which was necessary to, to break open the fountain of the Great Deep. Okay, so the ocean floor cracks number one. Okay, then it sinks into the bottom of the mantle over a matter of weeks Releasing enormous amounts of energy and that process is known as subduction. Okay, subduction where it's the sinking of the ocean floor down into the uh, the mantle so we're talking about enormous amounts of energy that are being released now liquid rock vaporizes huge volumes of ocean water to produce a linear curtain of supersonic stream jets along the entire 43,500 miles of the seafloor rift zones Now these jets which we would think of as the fountains Okay in Genesis 7:11, the fountains of the great deep capture large amounts of water as they shoot up through the ocean into the atmosphere water is catapulted high above the earth and then falls back to the surface as intense global rain which is perhaps the source for the floodgates of heaven also found in genesis chapter 11. So this model is very important. This model is central. And if you're out there right now considering that maybe you want to be a creation scientist one day, you want to be a scientist one day, but you're not sure how to contribute, this is a great area. Hey, get on board. Become a creation geologist or paleontologist and get on board um, and, and help us to figure out some of the different details that need to be fleshed out in order for the catastrophic plate tectonics model Work. This is just one area of a great, uh, just one example really of a great area where you could contribute greatly. The implications of the process that I just mentioned are rapid continental shifting, the rapid movement of water, again, seafloor subduction, the replacing of the entire seafloor. And then volcanic activity. And this volcanic activity, by the way, explains the Ice Age. Because as the ash from the volcanic activity goes up into the atmosphere, it forms a dust cloud. And the sun is not able to shine its light through. And what we find then is an explanation or a beginning of an explanation for the Ice Age that we find evidence of. And the Bible even talks about an ice age in Job. not sure the chapter right off, but the Bible talks about it too. And so, again, there's much more we could say here, and and we'll dive into this over the life of this radio ministry uh, many times, I'm sure. This will not be the last time we talk about the Grand Canyon and the flood. We may even have a special guest on here to talk about that. Um, And I'm I'm sure, I'm positive that we're going to go through a book study later on dealing with the different elements of this. Um, So we can really flesh this out. But I just wanted to give you a basic overview, a basic introduction to the idea of flood sedimentation and flood geology. Let's close out this week with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you again for the opportunity, Lord, to study your word and your world. We thank you that they match up. We thank you that you've given us the desire And the ability to be able to do the work on this, Lord. And to be able to understand how you did this, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for being able to spread this message so that others can hear it. God, we're appreciative of everything that you do and everything that you've given. We don't deserve anything, Lord, but we're thankful that you gave everything for sinners like us. Pray now that you would be with us this week. Go with us. Travel with us. Guide our way, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Creation Academy. God bless, and I hope you have a great week.